Julia Boston, welcome to Inspired By. I'll do whatever it, it takes to be taken seriously, not treated like a little girl. And on many occasions, I was told I was a little girl by men who mostly who I was interviewing for Fortune magazine. The advice everyone gave me was keep your head down, do the work, work harder than your male colleagues. They're going to go out and have drinks and play squash with the bosses. And this is something a lot of people have been told, like, do the work, keep your head down, don't rock the boat. And I think I was less ambitious than I should have been. When you were going through these interviews, was there anyone in particular that really surprised you? Even someone like Gwyneth Paltrow, whose story has been told so many times. Yeah. We've all read so many interviews and talking to her, I was really surprised. Thinking, um, hearing her thinking about her leadership style, her approach, what makes her makes her successful. That, I mean, even that was a big surprise. Or Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's company. All of that was a surprise as well. Welcome to Inspire By, the show that brings you inspiring stories from inspiring entrepreneurs with a twist. Now, I believe that every successful entrepreneur and celebrity on this planet has an inspiring story, and they have stories that they haven't yet told. Not because they don't want to tell the story, but because they haven't been asked the right questions. So my job on the show is to ask the real questions so that you get the real answers. Now, with that in mind, let's get started. Julia Boston, welcome to Inspired By. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. It's great to be here. So I'm really glad, Julia, because we've had this talk planned for a little while. We originally actually met in the UK in London when you were coming to an event at Albright where I was in the audience and you were being interviewed and you're talking about your incredible book, When Women Lead. Now, I've got loads of questions on the book. I read it and cover to cover, and you've interviewed some incredible people in the journey of writing a book. But before we talk about that and them, I want to talk a little bit about you and find out a bit more about you. So I read in your book that you've been an on-air reporter since 2006. That's yeah, a while. It's, it's, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. And I actually did some TV before that when I first started out as a magazine reporter. Um, I was doing some TV on the side for CNN, but I've been working for CNBC since 2006. And everyone says it's so weird to have the same job for so long, but I actually feel like my job has evolved and changed in part because um, the subject matter continues to change. I cover media and technology, mm -hmm. and these these two fields have really converged, and we see the landscape changing so much every year, even every day. So I feel like the subject matter is really different than than it was even a couple of years ago. I cover artificial intelligence. No one was really talking about that a couple of years ago. So um, it's just been fascinating to watch the subject matter change, and also the medium changes. You know, when mm -hmm. I started out, I was just appearing on TV. Now I do live stream shows. I have the capability to broadcast from my house thanks to some technology uh, explored during the pandemic. So I feel like mm -hmm. the the medium has changed, the content has changed, and it's just been a great place, which has really enabled me to be an entrepreneurial um, over the last 16 years as well. I think the fact that I've been able to create these different things within this corporate structure has been very satisfying and gratifying. Um, one, of, one of the things I'm most proud of is I created the Disruptor 50 list 11 years ago. And this list highlights the 50 startups that are really challenging the status quo and the big um, public incumbents, and also really just driving change in, in the way technology is impacting all these different industries. So that's something that I could do within the, the structure of CNBC, but it's really changed the nature of my job. Wow. And I find that fascinating, Judah, because you've had so much freedom almost inside a huge, huge organization. And I'm curious, before we touch on that, what attracted you to get into TV, reporting, print media, broadcast media, right way back when? 
Well, my interest was always in writing and journalism. So I worked on the newspaper in high school. I worked on the newspaper in college. It was just something that I always, um, I loved. And I felt like I really understood the the way journalism worked and also its potential impact. And I loved in college being on the school newspaper and feeling like we could have a voice in what happened at the university. Um, so that was really gratifying. And then I sort of thought I would go on and have a career in public policy. I was thinking about going to law school. I was going to go um, get a master's in international relations. But I thought, first, I'll take a year and go work in a magazine in New York. At the time, a bunch of my friends were leaving. I went to Princeton, which is close to New York. We were leaving. And a lot of people were moving to New York. And so I ended up applying to a bunch of magazines and newspapers. And the best job I got was at Fortune Magazine. Elsewhere, I would have been writing captions or I would have been um, doing fact checking. But at Fortune, it was a reporter job. And I thought, you know, I, I'll try this out for a year and see how it goes. And I really fell in love with it. And what I really found was that the business, the, the, the business journalism lens enabled me to tell stories about people, about social trends, about society and culture. But through this business lens, which is very serious, there's something about the business world where there are hard numbers, there's data that's attached mm -hmm. to things. It's not just about feelings and, and publicity and pop culture. It's really about hard facts. And I think at a time when the journalism world can become very fluffy um, or about just celebrities or um, pop culture, there's something very grounding about that lens of business news. Mm. Um, and so I really fell in love with it and this idea of using business as a way to tell stories about the world um, and, and about change was really compelling to me. And so I fell in love with it at Fortune Magazine. And there I kind of fell into the TV thing. I was first, at the time, Fortune and CNN were owned by the same parent company, and they would frequently have on reporters to talk about stories they'd written. So one day, I wrote a story about 20 people who had lost over a billion dollars in the stock market crash in 2001, and uh, and then they invited me on to talk about it. And I thought it was so funny that as a 22-year-old at the time, I was being asked to to talk on live television. I did, I just thought it was funny. I didn't get nervous. And they thought, oh, you're comfortable, you're articulate, we should have you back on. And that became a regular segment. So I ended up having a, seg a regular segment three, three or so times a week on CNN and CNN Headline News. And that's what led me to CNBC. Wow. And um, what's it been like working at CNBC for 17 years? You know, you mentioned the industry's changed a lot. I mean, I'm sure the organization has changed a lot. How, how has it been for you? Well, I've been based out in Los Angeles for the vast majority of that time. So I'm a little bit on an island out here. Um, I spend a lot of the time on the phone with my colleagues back east. But um, I think that, you know, CNBC is such a great institution. People feel people tend to stay here for a very long time. So it's actually not unusual. Most of my colleagues have been at CNBC for roughly the same amount of time or longer. Um, so there's actually a, a real longevity here. Um, but I think in an institution that does have such consistency, there is this opportunity to come up with new franchises. And I actually think that being a journalist is in a way very entrepreneurial, sort of in, very inherently entrepreneurial. It's always about pitching stories, right? What story do you want to tell? How are you going to convince your editor that it's worth investing the resources to tell this story? Um, obviously, at a different scale than pitching a company. But um, I think there is something similar to that, this idea that you're always needing to come up with new ideas to tell a different story that's being told on another network or, or in the in the papers. Um, so I think it lends itself to an entrepreneurial bent. 
Mm, yeah, I totally agree. When I was reading your book and I was hearing the stories of the founders that you've connected with, and then also hearing your story of how you push through, you know, some of the bias and some of the other stuff that you talk about in the book, it did seem quite entrepreneurial. And I always find, you know, imagine you're, you're fresh faced, you've just joined CNBC or, or, or even Fortune magazine back then. It's always great to have a mentor or someone that can guide us through that. Who who helped you on that journey to sort of help you pave the path? Well, um, it's interesting because when I started off at Fortune magazine, I was assigned to work with this writer who was an editor at large. And um, his name was Andy Serwer. He's since he would sit and then went on to become editor in chief of Fortune magazine. He was at Yahoo. Um, now he's at Barron's. And I felt like I was apprenticed to, to an ultimate sort of legend in, in journalism. And I got to really learn from him and I got to ask him advice. And that was the, the benefit is I worked really hard doing interviews for him and doing research for him. And I earned his respect. And, and as a result, he would give me advice and he would put, he really would push me. Um, and so he was a great, a uh, great asset to have his, to have his ear was really helpful to me um, as I navigated Fortune magazine and even the transition to television. And I have to say at CNBC, um, I just feel so lucky to have colleagues who I could call upon mm. um, for help and advice. And, um, and you know, especially being 3,000 miles away, whether it's my, my colleagues in San Francisco, I'm up and down to San Francisco very frequently. I work very closely with their, my colleagues up there and also the bureau chief. And then my colleagues back East, um, I, I'm a big believer in brainstorming. I think for me, it's really important to say my ideas out loud, to share my ideas on whether it's in emails or in, in meetings and to have that constant conversation because it pushes me to think differently, um, mm -hmm. which is also something that came up in the book. But so I spent a lot of time on the phone with my colleagues, Becky Snyder, and I have many of my colleagues I've worked with the, the whole time I've been at, at CNBC. I feel like they know me, they know my strengths and they know my weaknesses. And that sort of real understanding of who I am and who they are can, can enable them to really push me to be better at what I do. Mm, yeah I think it's so handy isn't it having people that you can trust that will also say yeah. Julie that's a great idea or oh, that's not quite on it yeah. but you know how how did you find that in the media industry because for someone who's not inside a media industry I mean a lot I work very closely with it we see from the outside in that it's like you know ruthless everyone's really harsh to each other you know one thing on camera one thing off camera was it really like that or is that just what we see in, in tv and in the movies um, I think, but I think in TV and movies, you also see real friendships, right? And I think that the reality is, is that the more we define our niche and our areas of expertise, I feel like that's, I feel very grateful. I have my niche, my area of expertise, because it means that I'm different from my colleagues. And I don't need to think about being cutthroat because we each do our own thing. And I think about whether it's like the, one of the, the anchors, who's also an expert in tech, John Ford, he and I are very different. But we are great on camera together and we're great when we're brainstorming because we understand each other's strengths. Um, and so when I started out, there was some comment, this was back in 2006. I remember there was a senior woman who made some snide comments about me and one of my female colleagues. And she said, um, she said, you girls shouldn't be friends. You should hate each other. You should be out to get each other. And she and I were this, my friend and I were like, we're not going to play by that game. Like we're not going to play that game. That's like not useful to either one of us to have that kind of negative energy. And so I do feel like women of my generation are very much looking to, to succeed without having it to be cutthroat. And, um, mm. and, and that's just, not, I mean, it's not, that's just not how I operate. Um, and actually I think there's something 
fun about going and doing my own thing and being and creating these new these new projects, whether it's closing the gap, which is an initiative I started around um, covering companies and um, individuals that are closing gender and diversity gaps or the disruptor 50, it's because it's it's creative, it's not destructive, right? I don't mm-hmm. want to succeed at someone else's um, I don't want someone else to have to fail in order for me to succeed. I feel like that's it's that's bad juju. It's just not it's just not good karma. It's not the way I want to operate in the world. And I do have I have found that in especially in reporting my book, women were so eager to help other women. Mm. And they would say, don't talk to me, talk to this amazing entrepreneur I just met, or my story's been told too much. Like who you really shouldn't be shining a spotlight on is this woman. And I think there's something about that generosity that um I think I think there's a sense now that this we can operate with that kind of generosity in our mm. work. Um, and I also think, frankly, being at a place where there isn't a lot of turnover, people know that I'm in it for the long haul. And so, um, you know, my colleagues and I have known each other for years and there's it's a real it's a real advantage. Yeah, definitely. I love that, though, because a lot of people get competitive, almost like there's a lack. There's not enough to go around, whereas yeah. the generosity Scarcity. approach is. Yeah. Exactly. It's more like there's plenty, there's enough for all of us. We can all succeed and we can help each other up if we fall down and that sort of teamwork, even though you're kind of in your own lane and in your own niche. Yeah. And I actually think the more you understand what your strengths and weaknesses are, Mm -hmm. the more you can um, feel that confidence and feel like you can be generous. And I actually, there's some great data that I write about in my book, When Women Lead, but this idea that you want, um, you don't want to have a scarcity mindset. You want to have a set a mindset of abundance because then you won't you won't make bad decisions. And if you feel confident that there is enough attention or enough um, enough relationships or enough whatever it is to go around, you can make wiser decisions based on that. And so when I when I found that research, I was like, oh, this makes sense and this resonates. You don't want to be operating from a a, a position of scarcity because then you're going to be making decisions for a near-term win that are going to end up backfiring over the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now, I just want to interrupt this episode with something really exciting I want to share with you. Maybe you've been listening to this episode or watching it thinking, Chloe, I've got an inspiring story. I would love to tell my story. Maybe you're sat there like many of our guests who have an inspiring story and know you have knowledge and experience you want to share with the world, but you don't quite know how to use it to help others. Well, I've worked with over 100 authors and co-authors to share their story in books and ultimately use their knowledge and experience that they've picked up on their way to help other people all over the world. And not only have they helped other people, they've gone on to be number one best-selling authors, speak on stages with well-known celebrities, and feature on podcasts just like this. And maybe there's a part of you that thinks, you know what, Chloe, I would love to be doing that too. Well, let me tell you a secret. It all starts with planning exactly what you want to write or share in your own book. And one of the things that I've learned from working with so many different authors is that planning is the key to success. And so if there's a part of you that would like to be able to write and publish your own book or start sharing your story, sharing your message with people that you know that could really benefit from it, then I've got something special for you. I've come up with a planner that I've used to work with all of my authors so far that helps you to get your stories out of your head and onto paper and ultimately into a published book. Now, normally that's only for our paying clients, but I'm going to be making it available as a gift to you as a loyal listener and follower of the Inspired by Show. So if you want to learn how to write your story, learn how to get your book out of your head onto paper and plan your best-selling book, then you can get access to this planner for free. All you've got to do, go to www.inspiredbybooks.co 
co.uk slash planner. Or to make it easier, I've popped the link in the description for you today. So click the link, enter your details and get access to this writing planner now. I cannot wait to hear what book idea you've come up with. Now back to the episode. And there were so many findings in your book about, you know, some of, a lot of the women that you interviewed, a lot of the stories that they shared. And, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating was actually early in your book where you talk about your own experience of the first sort of journey into, yeah. into the media industry. Where did you find yourself having to change or did you try and sort of mold into what you thought it would have to be? Well, I think that part of my journey is what a lot of women go through when they enter the workforce. And I actually think it's become less bad than it was when I started my career in the early 2000s. Um, when I entered the working world first as a reporter at Fortune Magazine, what I found was everything was very male dominated. Men held most of the positions of power. The women who did happen to hold positions of power felt frequently like they had to act like men um, and like they didn't want to help the younger women because there was a limited number of spots for the women in power. And so they, they again, were operating with scarcity and didn't want to help the women behind them. I think that has changed dramatically. And you even see it in the fact that women understand that there can be room for more than one of us now. So we want to help the women behind us because we will be more successful. We have more women around us and not just room for one. Um, but I remember feeling very much like the advice everyone gave me was keep your head down, do the work, work harder than your male colleagues. They're going to go out and have drinks and play squash with the bosses and go out to baseball games. And you're going to stay there and you're not going to be going out for bourbon, but you're going to do the work and just work extra hard. And this is something a lot of people have been told, like, do the work, keep your head down, don't rock the boat. And as a result, I tried to just sort of like go along with the flow and and I think I was less ambitious than I should have been. Mm. And I think I was also more careful because I was so afraid of doing the wrong thing. And also I wanted to be taken seriously. And I was like, I'll do whatever it, it takes to be taken seriously, not treated like a little girl. And mm. on many occasions, I was told I was a little girl by men who mostly who I was interviewing for Fortune magazine. And like, I'm not a little girl. You know, I guess I may be 22 years old, but I've done my homework. So I found that I compensated for that discomfort that I often anticipated and did end up coming by just over over preparing and over preparing became my safety net. Um, but I still didn't have the confidence that I should have in my, my the fact that I deserve to be there um, mm -hmm. because I was told by everyone that I had to just keep my head down and not rock the boat. And so as a result, I saw my male colleagues going out to having having drinks, playing squash or tennis with our male bosses. And then they happened to get assignments that came out of that. And it wasn't malicious. It wasn't like they're like, oh, let's exclude Julia from these mm -hmm. conversations. Just, you know, one thing leads to another, you're having a conversation. They're like, what about this idea? What about that idea? So I, I very much had to come to grips with this world that existed that was not fair and was not meritocratic, but I had to navigate that world without, uh, without you know, letting it destroy me. And so one thing that was interesting is the attitude that I had then and that I think many women have had is, just ignore the obstacles, keep on going, do the work, and don't really dig into why these obstacles exist. Um, and one thing I realized in doing my book, writing my book and doing the research for my book, is that there's actually massive benefit to be gained in understanding your obstacles. So for me, it would have been helpful to know that people thought I was talking more than I was. And when people said, oh, you talk too much, I wasn't actually talking too much. But that's the perception that women talk more than they do. Or when I was given feedback on my style rather than my substance, and it wasn't that I had done something wrong, but that typically 
women are more likely to get feedback on their style rather than on the substance of their work. And guess what? That's a double, that's a double whammy in terms of why that's bad for women. You're missing out on the feedback on your substance. That's what you should be getting feedback on. And maybe the feedback on your style, maybe you're too loud or maybe you talk too much or maybe you're too harsh or I think about all the the names I was called when I was just trying to be taken seriously that I feel like it's it's sort of a double negative for women. So I think what I realized is that the way I was operating, which is putting my head down and doing the work, I was missing out on my own ability to to process this the the world around me as being the result of these social structures that have existed forever. And if I had really understood why I was getting the feedback I was or what was holding me back, I would have been able to overcome it. So part of what I do in the books, I try to lay out what these obstacles are so mm-hmm. that you don't take them personally. So it's not an emotional thing. You're like, oh, he just has this assumption about me because this is what he was raised to believe. Or when I don't act in a way that's warm and nurturing and I'm not the one who's bringing in the birthday cake for for the party at work, then they think I'm violating some some stereotype of how women are supposed to behave. So I think just having that knowledge Rather than ignoring it, embracing that knowledge as empowering, I think is is really important. It's really helped me since I've learned all these mm. these these points that I write about in the book, and I wish I had known about them earlier. Yeah, I totally agree. When I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, a lot of it makes sense for a lot of women. Anyone that's yeah. reading it, if you haven't read it or not, when when you get to reading it, you'll so, sometimes it just makes sense. You're like, oh, that's why I had that experience. Or I've actually lived and breathed that particular interview. Like when you were interviewing some of the people, I was like, that was my life in the corporate world. I was like that when I made director at Too Young and I was told I was too young for the role. And it, yeah. I can totally relate to it. And I think- but, and, it, but don't you think there's something that's a relief about that when you're like, oh, mm. I'm not alone. It's not my fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also a lot of the people you interviewed, Julia, in the book are- not just incredibly inspiring, but quite well-known people. So when I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, it's not just a normal person sat like me who's experienced that. Like if people who can be that successful and achieve that much like yourself can go through that, then actually, you know, we're all normal, quote unquote, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And I and I really, with the book, wanted to have a mix of people who you've heard of and you know about who are quite well-known, whether it's Gwyneth Paltrow or the founder of Bumble, Whitney Wolford, telling stories about them that you didn't know, plus Mm. writing stories about people you've never heard of, but are really amazing. Mm. And that you're like, oh my gosh, I've never heard of this woman. How have I never heard of her? She's phenomenal. So I think it's that combination um, and showing the universality of what we have to navigate, but also the fact that you can succeed in lots of different ways. Mm. And one thing that I found as a business journalist over the years is that there is a stereotype of what a leader looks like, a stereotype of what a CEO looks like. And it is a white man. That is the stereotype. There's the Mm. guy in a hoodie in Silicon Valley. There's a man in a suit in Wall Street. And that is the dominant stereotype of leadership. When people are rare in certain roles, they draw added scrutiny and criticism. And the data around that is mind-blowing. People tend to be more underestimated the more rare they are in a certain role. And I have a fabulous study about this in the book that I love so much about jockeys, comparing jockeys and horse races, because it, it really encapsulates it. But to me, that idea of if you're, if you're rare, you're going to be criticized and you're also going to be underestimated. That's important to understand, but it's also important to understand that you can succeed by being yourself and you don't have to fit yourself into this box and try to emulate that stereotype. And the women who succeeded did so on their own terms by figuring out who they are, really knowing who they are, what they were good at, and how to use those skill sets. 
to navigate their company, their world, their industry in a way that was actually authentic to them. And I think once you strip away all that energy spent trying to be someone you're not, then you're really liberated and really able to succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. And it's like finding those things that are like your genius or your sparkle and being like, that's what I'm really good at. And that's what I'm going to hone in on. And not, I often find women, I don't know if you've experienced this, Julia, where they know that we're up against it or we've got this stereotype. And so they go the other way and they blame it or they criticize it. And for me, it's like, that's the world we live in. And obviously we're all doing our best to change that now, but what can we leverage it for? What can we do? How can we make, how can we take ownership of this is my strengths? I know I've got that obstacle, but what am I going to do anyway? Yeah. And I think, I think part of it is like, okay, long-term I want, I want this to change, but in the mean, in the meantime, I need to deal with this right now. Mm. And so there's one startup CEO. I remember um, talking to her about this research that um, we had both seen about how women are judged more harshly if they give negative feedback to their employees. So obviously nobody likes to get negative feedback, but if an employee is given negative feedback by a male boss, they take it in one way. If they're given it by a female boss, they hate their boss. And so it all of a sudden puts that female boss, who of course has to give negative feedback, everyone has to give negative feedback if you're a boss, at a disadvantage. And so I was talking to her about this and how she manages this kind of thing. She said, look, long-term, I hope that changes. Because this is Kim um, Kim Masters from a Cluster. I'm sorry, Kim Taylor from Cluster. She said, yes, of course, I hope that changes. But if I'm in a tough spot and I don't have time to deal with all the feelings of people who are angry at me because I just told them something negative, it, there's going to be times when I'm going to say, okay, I'm in a rush right now. I'm going to delegate that negative feedback to, to one of my male colleagues and I'm going to make him give it so I could focus my attention on other things. And I think just having that information at your fingertips so you can make really educated decisions mm. about where you're going to want to spend your time, where you're going to devote your emotional energy um, when you're trying to run a company. She's like, I'm trying to scale this company right now. Kim Taylor's like, I got stuff to do. I don't have time to deal with an angry employee today. Maybe tomorrow it'll be a different situation mm. because it'll be worth it in that situation. But right now I have to have the cost benefit analysis. And I think if you're armed with that information, then you'll make wiser choices. Mm, Yeah. And you're right. It's all about the choices and knowing at different stages in our career or in the journey, we're going to face different hurdles. So one of the things which I resonated with, especially as you mentioned now is, you know, you're fresh face starting in your career and there was beliefs and, you know, head down, get on with it. The men will go for their drinks and do this, this, and this. It's what your experience. Did you find when you transitioned out of the, she's too young moment, you know, the next part of your career is more success families, you know, other priorities. Did you find the stereotypes or the judgments changed on that journey or did it ever get easier? Oh, there are lots of different stereotypes. I mean, when I was pregnant with my first child, I was at CNBC at the time. I was on camera, visibly pregnant. Um, mm. And I remember sitting down for interviews. And I had my huge belly and, and like, it was, I mean, I, there was no hiding my preg- pregnancy. And, um, there was plenty of inappropriate things that happened. I remember multiple men I interviewed who would like run over, like come over to the interview and like, I'm, I'm sitting there, I can't move. Right. I'm wearing a microphone. I'm not going anywhere. And they would like touch my stomach, touch my belly. And I'd be like, this is just like not appropriate. And, but I would have to keep it together because I was going to go on live television. I wasn't going to let that throw me off. Mm. But as many people said, oh, I assume you're not going to come back to work. You couldn't possibly want to do your job after you've had kids. And I would think to myself, I love my job. Of course, I'm going to want to do my job. What do you mean? I, I just have to figure it out. Or maybe the fact that I'm based in on the West Coast and I work for an East Coast-based company, maybe that's an advantage. Maybe the fact that I work very early hours and I'm done at three, 
um, for the most part, or, and especially at the time I was done it through, maybe that's something I could use as a benefit. And by the way, I, it turned out to be a great benefit. I would leave early in the morning. My husband was in charge of the kids in the morning, and then I would be home at three and I could now I pick them up at school. And so I, for me, there was just an, an assumption that I was going to opt out because sometimes women opt out. And an assumption that I wasn't either capable of it or didn't have that ambition. And so I think there's, you know, always these conversations. They're always going to be stereotypes. Um, and But I think things are getting better. I think that the more examples there are, of whether it's working women or female CEOs, I think we just need to have those examples out there. So not just for the women, but so men understand mm. that I can be a working, working mother on TV at five in the morning and, at, you know, at, at whatever, or for the, for them to understand that this is what CEOs look like. One reason I wrote my book is for men to understand that this is what success stories look like. They look like diverse women. And these are some examples. So um, yes, plenty of different stereotypes. I do feel like they have been diminished um, over time. And I do think there there was something about the Me Too Times Up movement of 2017, 2018, really raised some awareness of the fact that you can't say these things anymore. And mm -hmm. I have a, a friend who, um, Jessica Yellen, who's um, has a great news platform called News Not Noise. She I recommend it highly. She um, was the senior White House correspondent for CNN for many years. And she'd be interviewing people and they would say inappropriate things to her. And so she and I were talking about how you respond to that. And this is like up until a couple of years ago. And she would say, I don't think you can say that to me anymore. And gee, I, gee, with like a little laugh, like, gee, I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore. This idea that like, we can acknowledge now that, mm. that what you said is inappropriate, but I'm not gonna make a big deal out of it. And we're gonna move on. So it's sort of like creating um, a coping mechanism that doesn't take her emotional energy. Mm, yeah I think that's the key isn't it it's not to rise to it but like you say now yeah. we don't have to pretend accidentally that we're just going to pretend it didn't happen you know we can't yeah, you don't have to pretend it. it didn't happen but but you have to figure out how to to deal with it in a way that's not going to bring yourself down like to me I always felt like I had to internalize things so as I didn't rock the boat but now it's like oh I can acknowledge it in a way that doesn't impact me and throw me off course Mm, yeah I think it's so interesting and I'm curious Julia you mentioned about the benefits that a lot of women have you know we're not male slating right now for anyone who's watching or listening we're not anti-men I totally agree with you Julia I think actually a lot of men can benefit from reading your book and learn yeah, a and lot I actually, about the women I really wrote the book for men to read just as, as much as women yeah it, it is it's written that way it does come across like you're not slating you're not you know I know you interviewed some men as well and you've got lots of different stories to share it does come across as if it's written for both to understand it from both perspectives yeah and, and look I my audience on CNBC is largely male we have more more male audience on watching CNBC than we do a female audience and for me what I think is really important is to share these other stories and the real argument of the book from men to read it is that there is a missed financial opportunity if female female founders tend to outperform, there's a lot of data showing female CEOs yield higher returns um, in the years after they're appointed. There's so many different financial arguments for investing in diversity, and yet it doesn't happen very often. So my argument is understand the numbers, see the examples, and use all of this information to strip away the bias that that we all have and to strip away from this sort of this impulse to pattern match to look for the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next Jamie Dimon or these just to perpetuate these cycles and use that as an opportunity to unlock more financial value. 
And, um, and it's effectively, you know, I was talking to some private equity investors who were men who had read my book. They're like, wow, it seems like a real arbitrage opportunity to focus on these untapped, untapped opportunities and in investing in women. I said, I think that's a good way to put it. So this idea that we can all unlock value, not only by investing more in diversity, but also in leading the way that women tend to lead. And I was lucky to get to write my book over the pandemic um, in that I, I had great access to, to women. Everyone was available. But also what I saw over the pandemic is that the, the skills and strategies women tend to deploy are were essential during the pandemic and I think are more valuable now than ever. And I truly believe that the pandemic shed light on the importance of the particular skills and strategies women tend to bring to the table. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk a lot about those strategies in your book. One of the ones that kept coming up for me was vulnerability. I saw it in almost all the stories you shared. I know there was various chapters on that. Yeah. Where do you think vulnerability plays a part in female leadership and how can men learn that from us women? Well, the key thing about vulnerability is it needs to be strategically deployed. If you're going to be vulnerable and say, here's what I don't know, here's where I don't have any expertise, you need to say where you do have strength. So I think there's this message, especially when I was coming coming of age in the business world, where people were supposed to portray strength at all times, total confidence, we know the path, we're good to go. And the reality is, is if you pretend you always know what you're doing, you're going to miss out on opportunity and feedback in the areas where you really need it. So a number of women I talked to said that um, they strategically deployed vulnerability to invite collaboration. So if you know Katrina Lake was founding Stitch, Stitch Fix, she was able to hire people who she should not, who who would have had no business leaving Netflix or Walmart to join a little startup. I, and people said to me, Katrina Lake is a talent magnet. And I kept on saying, what, first of all, what did that even mean to be a talent magnet? Doesn't everyone want to be a talent magnet? Sign me up, you know? But why was she, like, what is it, what is the special skill that it takes to be a talent magnet? And I actually spent quite a bit of time looking for academic research on what makes someone a talent magnet. The research is not out there. If anyone could find it, I look forward to reading it. But to me, and I, so I really, I interviewed her investors. I talked to her multiple times. I was like, how were you able to get these people to come work for you? And ultimately what it really came down to is the fact that she said she would call up these people who are top of their fields and say, I do not have expertise in data science. Leave Netflix and come work for me and I will let you take the lead in this. Here's a big problem and a big opportunity. I'm not going to micromanage you because I respect your expertise in this area. Her own vulnerability, admitting what she did not know and admitting the big hole in her company made those people feel confident that they would have a growth opportunity. Having And there's lots of research about how it's important for people to feel a sense of autonomy. And I think that that's what vulnerability can do when you're inviting collaboration. I think also, you know, there's something about the pandemic, seeing that nobody has all the answers, mm. nobody knows everything. The more, um, the more honest you are, the more I think you earn respect because people are going to believe you're good at the thing you say you're good at if you admit you're not good at the thing you don't know anything about. So I think that that honesty builds trust. And I think there's a lot of research about how vulnerability invites people to, to trust you. Nobody's perfect. And if you pretend you are, people are going to smell it from a mile away. 
Yeah, definitely. And sometimes it's about vulnerability, being vulnerable, that you're not comfortable being vulnerable. Because sometimes yeah. I think people struggle with, I need, like you say, there's so many patterns we've learned and behaviors we've learned, which is I must know everything, especially as a founder or a business owner. I yeah. must do everything right. I must be the expert in this. If people, if I don't know the answer, people will judge me, especially when a lot of women already feel like they're being judged in in the minority. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And I think that, um, it's interesting talking to female CEOs about the importance of vulnerability. One woman said to me, you know, I overdid it once. I was overly vulnerable and it ended up backfiring because that person thought that they weren't going to have to collaborate with me. It was a man she'd, she'd hired. She used her vulnerability to hire someone very senior. And she said it ended backfired because I didn't establish with him where, what my areas of strength were. So I think anything where you're performing it, whether you're performing competence or you're performing vulnerability, it's going to fail. I think it all comes down to authenticity. Mm. And the truth is, of course, everyone has their their weaknesses. I think it's the vulnerability is just admitting who you are and, and what you have to learn. That's, I think, why it's like it all has to be authentic. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And there were so many things, Julia, in the book that I found really fascinating were surprises to me. When you first set out to write the book, you probably had a vision of what you were hoping for or, you know, some lessons you thought would come out. What surprised you with your findings and the interviews that you did in, in the book? It was all the big surprise. And it was really just such a fabulous, I'm, I'm so grateful for the experience of writing this book. At first, I just wanted to tell the stories of women who had defied the odds. I was so impressed by some of these women I'd met. I was so struck by the crazy data that women draw 3% of all venture capital funding. And I thought to myself, I've met these women who've defied those crazy odds. I've met the women who've done what seems impossible considering all the challenges they faced. And I'm so inspired by them. I'm just dying to tell their stories. I want everyone to hear their stories. So it started out with that impulse. But the more women I interviewed, the more I realized it wasn't going to be enough just to tell their stories. I needed to explain how they had done it, how they had managed to defy those odds. What are the lessons that we could each learn from them? Anyone, male or female, could learn from them. And why was it that their strategies, which are different than men's strategies, are so effective right now? So the stories ended up, I didn't realize this would be as much of a research project as it was, but the stories led me to read about 300 academic studies. And I just would go down these rabbit holes. I would finish interviews. I'd go through the transcripts. I'd find out key, pick out key themes, empathy, vulnerability, gratitude, communal leadership. And then I would I'd have this big whiteboard or this, you know, giant, giant, it looked like whiteboard with pieces of paper. I'd write down all these themes. And then I'd look for research on each of these research, explaining why those skills and strategies are very good for your leadership, but also research explaining why women are more likely to deploy those. So the stories led to the research, led to the sort of the synthesis of it um, and really an, an argument in favor of the financial advantages of not only leading differently, but also really considering the financial advantages of diversity, both in terms of gender, but all types of diversity, because gender diversity is sort of the first thing that's being researched right now. But there's so much other research about all the advantages of diversity. Mm, yeah, and you're right. Gender is only one piece. And there are obviously one lots of facets of, of that. Yeah. There are lots of facets yeah. of, and lots it, of others. It was, yeah, it was impossible for me to look at gender diversity without also looking at racial diversity, mm. diversity of thought. And um, and there's a lot of research that touches on that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Fascinating. And um, Julia, obviously you've gone on this journey, as you said, one big surprise, lots of people you've interviewed. How has, since writing this book, changed either how you work at, in your role now, how you interview now, has it changed it at all? 
Oh, absolutely. I feel so much less afraid. I think I didn't even realize how afraid I was of messing up, of, mm-hmm. um, of failing, of making a mistake. And I think I thought that any mistake would be a failure. And obviously a failure seems like a really big deal. But I think I've realized now that it's worth taking risks because the upside is so huge and the potential for downside is just not as bad as I'd always thought. So I think I feel very much unfettered by my fears that had held me back. I think it means that I'm trying to think bigger. I'm coming up with more ideas, more more story ideas, trying to think sort of more um, creatively um, and to really stop holding myself back. I think a lot of um, the research about uh, about navigating challenges has empowered me to think like, okay, if I'm coming up against a challenge, um, if it's in the organization or it's about getting through to someone, like how can I understand that challenge differently? What is it that's really happening there and what part of that has to do with me and what part of that doesn't have to do with me. And once you have that perspective, I think it enables you to better navigate things. So it's been, it's felt very liberating for me. And I think for many of the women who have read the book also to just try to feel like they can chart their own path and also think, think ambitiously about what I want my future to look like. And I hope all women who read it and can think eventually about what they want their futures to look like. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's, it certainly made me question a lot of my stuff. It was like, some of it made sense. And then others was like, hmm, as a business owner, an entrepreneur, how can I learn from this, adapt to it? And I'm curious for you, Julia, you've obviously interviewed a lot of people. Some of it didn't go in the book, obviously, because you had so many great interviews. How did you decide who to interview and how did you approach them? Because it's just an idea at one point, right? Did anyone just think, yeah, oh, it, she's it's mad? It's an idea. I did decide to start the process by going to investors. I said investors who see hundreds and hundreds of companies, they invest in a smaller selection of them. They get their big filter, right? They get mm. oftentimes thousands of, of, of companies and pitch them over their careers. So I went to investors um, and I said, tell me who are some of the most impressive, interesting people, women are you've invested in, um, the ones that have really blown you away, whose stories you found are really compelling. So those investors led me to a lot of the people in the book. And then oftentimes women would recommend other women. Um, and sometimes the women who didn't get into the book, they recommended people who I ended up talking to and having great interviews with. And sometimes the choice of who to include or didn't not include really came down to um, whether or not they really illustrated the point well, um, or, and also how much they were willing to share. A number of people said, you know, I'll tell you my story off the record, but I don't want to tell it on the record. I don't want to I don't want to share something so personal. And I also don't want to maybe even put a, a, a target on my back. I do think there's a lot of concern that there's heightened criticism of, of female leaders, which I think we, we've we all seen. Um, but so I, you know, one interview led to another and, and I got so many recommendations and so much generosity of people saying, you have to talk to this person. She's amazing with no skin in the game. Um, but it really all started with the investors since they have seen so many, so many different pitches and, and entrepreneurs mm. oh fantastic you're right though because they are a good filter because they're not going to go too yeah. close to anyone that that's not worth investing in and yeah. Julia when you were when you were going through these interviews was there anyone in particular that really surprised you out of them in particular or anyone that story you just thought wow I wasn't expecting that so many of them I mean even someone like Gwyneth Paltrow whose story has been told so many times yeah. we've all read so many interviews and articles about Gwyneth Paltrow, but talking to her, I was really surprised. Thinking, um, hearing her thinking about her leadership style, her approach, what makes her makes her successful. That, I mean, even that was a big surprise. Or Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's company, all of that was a surprise as well. So I think 
Um, there was something very valuable about doing these interviews during the pandemic and that I think everyone had a moment of reflection and everyone was already feeling very reflective. I mean, most of the interviews were done in um, the sort of the year after the pandemic started. All the interviews were done the year after the pandemic started. And um, I think I caught people at moments of, of vulnerability and honesty and self-reflection. So I think people really dig, dug deep. And there was one woman, the CEO of Clear, which is a biometrics uh, company. I did a number of interviews with her in the summer of 2020. And then when I followed up with her in probably January of 2021, she said, oh my God, I can't believe I told you that story. That was so personal. And I said, yes. And do you want me not to include? She said, no, it's okay. I just am surprised that I, that I, that I went there. So I think um, it was, you know, I, I think people almost surprised themselves with, mm. with their own honesty about their drive, their mission, their purpose. Purpose is something that came up a lot mm -hmm. um, and something that everyone was reconsidering during the pandemic. Yeah. It, it you end up going on such a journey though, as as the interviewee and the interviewer, right? Because it's like a therapy. I always, I mean, I write books yeah. for a living. I run a book publishing business. So I've read a fair few books that have been written. And I find it probably was a therapy for you in terms of you're going through this journey. Also, people that are being interviewed are getting asked questions about things they've probably never been asked before. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's very, it's very intense and personal. And it's funny, having done most of these interviews on Zoom, um, to then meet these women in person. Um, you just feel like you really know them in a yeah. different way. Um, and it is very, it, it felt very therapeutic and honestly, it helped me define my purpose and really understand my, my hope to help elevate these stories of female leadership and help close gender gaps and help women mm -hmm. feel empowered and help men feel comfortable leading in different ways and not, not stuck within those stereotypes as well. Yeah, it's such a beautiful mission that you're on, Julia, and it's even more inspiring to see what you're doing for women and also for men, because as we said, it's yeah. the men that really need to adapt. Now, I know we're, we're tight for time, Julia. So my, my next question is more about what's next for you. You know, you've achieved a huge thing by writing this book. It was a project, a baby of yours for a while. What's next? Uh, you're very kind. Thank you so much. Um, well, I still have my day job. I'm a reporter at CNBC covering media and tech. Um, and I'm just and right now, you know, I thought I would be ready to work on my next book project. And I think instead, right now, I'm really focusing on getting these these stories and these ideas mm -hmm. out into the world and doing some speaking engagements and working on bringing some of this to CNBC um, through my through my work there as well. So really pursuing this path for a bit and thinking about what opportunities there are, whether it's around education um, or community, because um, I think there's a real need. And one thing that has surprised me about the book tour is to find how hungry women are for information mm. and hope and also how frustrated people are. And I didn't realize the degree to which I would find that sort of deep-seated frustration. And that makes me really want to dig into this further before moving on to the next project. Mm. Yeah, I think that's good though, because some people just go surface layer and they're like, great, tick that off, milestone complete. And actually it's going deeper into what's really... Yeah the challenge there and how can we as a society or individuals even just resolve it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's been really um, illuminating to have conversations on the book tour with women such as yourself um, all over, you know, the U S and also in the UK. Um, and just to hear what people need right now. I mean, the statistic that I keep on thinking about that's really driving me to continue focusing on this issue um, and on the mission of when women lead is that last fall, there was a study that came out that found that women at the VP level and above, are leaving their jobs in record numbers. And so if those women are leaving their jobs, then yes, maybe they're not retiring. Maybe they're maybe they're going to start a consultancy. But the fact that we don't have as many of those women in corporate America has a massive negative ripple effect. 
Mm. Because what it means is that young women don't have those role models. Men don't have those role models and men don't see that this is what leaders look like. So mm. I think that that is, is really um, potentially very risky in terms of the impact on corporate America. And, um, and I think that we need to empower women and men to navigate that and also have those examples of what, of the diversity of the potential and leadership. Mm, yeah. Because the challenge is like you say, we haven't got then the role models, but also we're, we're then changing the dynamic altogether and we're then getting yeah. in the media and saying, we need more women, we need more women. But there's the reason there's a big enough gap is because people are leaving as well. So definitely agree with that. And obviously we've spoken about your book quite a lot today. I would highly recommend it. If anyone hasn't already got Thank a copy, you. have a read of When Women Lead. Julia, one thing I want to mention as well is I really love the fact that it's called When Women Lead, not Why Women Lead you know well the, women the whole... do lead we don't need to explain why we need exactly to talk about what happens yeah what happens good things yeah. happen when women lead exactly and that's why i love this it's more it's a presupposition that women are leading it's coming and this is this is why now yeah, Julia... it is happening we just need to yeah. talk about it more good i'm glad now i'm conscious of time i've got one final question for you before we you jump back onto uh, all the other projects that you're currently working on on the show we have a tradition you've been here to share your inspiring story Interesting, obviously, we met in person in London and you actually wrote in the book, I can't wait to come on your show, which was was yeah. really sweet of you. And obviously now you're here. Who do you know that has an inspiring story? Maybe it's someone you've interviewed or someone you've spoken to before that you think we should have on the show next. Well, thank you again, Chloe. You're so kind. Two, I'm going to name two women, both of whom are in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is Melissa Hanna, and she is the CEO of a maternal health company based in Los Angeles called Mommy, M-A-H-M-E-E. And mm-hmm. they are having such a massive impact on improving maternal health, everything from physical health to postpartum depression. And this is an issue that's really been overlooked for so long. She's using technology, she's using data, and she's figuring out how to do it at scale. She's an amazing story. Her mother was the foremost lactation consultant or is the foremost lactation consultant in, in Southern California. And so she has a really funny story with her, which I, I, I tell some of the story in the book. It's, it's pretty hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can, would laugh every time I would work on that, that chapter. Um, and then the second person I would recommend is Dr. Toyin Ajayi. She's the CEO of a company called City Black Health. She worked mm-hmm. in Sierra Leone. She was educated um, in England as a doctor and, and at Stanford. And she worked in Sierra Leone, but she realized she needed to really help fix the U.S. healthcare service. They're serving low-income patients and doing it with a totally different approach. It's all about improving overall health, not thinking about putting a Band-Aid on the, situ- on the situation, but helping their patients with things, including social services, access to housing, with the understanding is that we really need to get to the root cause of what prevents people from becoming healthier. Mm-hmm. So she's phenomenal. They're, both those women are phenomenal. And there's so many other amazing women in the book but those are two whose stories I particularly loved. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we'll definitely be reaching out to them and seeing if they would be up for sharing their story on the Inspired by Show. So thank you so much, Julia. It's been great. I'm so glad we finally managed to make this happen. Thank even you so on much, Zoom. Zoe. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. And guys, I will make sure we have a link in the description or the show notes so you can get your copy of When Women Lead. Julia, thanks again. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Chloe. <laughs>